Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here as ever with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve. How are you, Pete? It's the final session, sadly, in our mini-series on economics. So today's topic is our beliefs on the connections between economics and markets and how important is that link. So, Steve, I guess um, as a parent, you'll be very familiar with what I'm about to say. So my daughter, Ruby, has now reached that age where she's got a question for everything. And uh, some of the stuff we've had over the dinner table this week have been things like... What happens when you reach the end of the universe? How did the world start? How did the Big Bang work? Yep. Uh, who made God? Things like that. So all of the usual ones. Uh, so some of the other stuff she's been asking when she watches Bluey on the television is, which came first, the colour television or the first colour TV broadcast? I've got absolutely no idea how you answer that. But also the same with mobile phones, which came first, the mobile phone network or the first mobile phone. I don't know where these questions come from and I don't have any good answers. But a a similar uh, type of question to kick off for you today is the correlation between economics and markets. Which way does that correlation go? Uh, Do markets drive the economy or does the economy drive markets or is it a bit of a circular reference um so let's let's start with that one i I think we'll park the questions on adam and eve and the bible and all of that stuff i think those are above my pay grade yeah 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 well as you know it's turtles all the way down (laughs) look i I think it's probably swapped i mean my own assessment would be that a long time ago it used to be the markets that well first of all i don't think the markets were that interesting because the advent of technology, particularly in the last probably, well, since the internet most certainly, has seen a real boom in information that travels really fast. You know, so that's that's something. I mean, we're seeing that today with Bitcoin and GameStop and all of that stuff, you know, where it just, the, the, the prices ricochet, you know, in nanoseconds sort of thing. Um, whereas 100 years ago, when uh, probably even longer now, I suppose when GM and, you know, Henry Ford were knocking out cars, there was, I, I suppose in my mind, markets were less relevant and the reality is that most people were in touch with the local community and stuff rather than the broader economy. I mean, you, you, think, about, you think about it now, Pete, you can, you can get news from just anywhere. You know, like Zimbabwe, uh, India. You know, like it's twenty four seven, and you can you can invest accordingly. Whereas a hundred years ago, um, well, you know, like when we talk about cricket, 
like a hundred years ago, they used to sail to England, you know, to to play test series and stuff. Yeah, six weeks on the boat. It always used to make me uh, laugh about you know. Imagine being one of those players that came over for the Ashes, and then uh, then you were on arrival. Uh, oh, sorry, mate, you've been uh, left out of the squad. <laughs> like, it makes you wonder how they they put up with that. I think um, certainly one of the things that's really changed, um, and I'm sure we talked about this in one of the earlier podcasts, is um, back in our parents' day, it was a question of you buy a house and you've got the the public sector pension, but certainly uh, in my neck of the woods, I didn't know um, anybody who was a private landlord. And there was um, a little bit of investing in shares eventually when British Telecom privatised and a couple of the other sort of main privatisations, but really day-to-day, you didn't meet anybody who was a, a stock market investor. Yeah, uh, But asset prices today are a really key part of our wealth and it's not just all about the public sector pension like back in those days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I guess what's happening to asset prices has a much more direct impact day-to-day on people's sentiment, therefore on spending, therefore on the economy and so on. So I guess that presumably has become a bigger part of the puzzle now. Yeah, most definitely. I think what's happened, like what you were saying is, in our day it was, in our day, God, I sound like a parrot, don't I? In my father's day it was, you know, buy a house, drop dead, that was it. Um, Whereas now there's a lot more people involved in markets. The thing that has turned around, Pete, is with, with everybody getting, you know, more and more assets or trying to get more and more assets, whether they're stocks or property or things like that, the it's sort of inverted. And so, you know, it's a long way of answering your question. I think in the old days, economics drove markets to, to a certain extent. You still had, you know, stock market bubbles when things got carried away. I think they were probably a lot slower. Um, but I think now the market really influences the economy now because of the, the the impact that the market fluctuations, you know, the volatility has on asset prices and how that actually feeds back into the sort of everyday psychology of investors. Um, and, I, and I think it's so, you know, in answer to your question, I actually think markets drive economies and there's been a few papers to sort of say that you know that one I think we talked about it Edward Lima you know in the US who said the housing cycle is actually the business cycle and what you can do is you can plot the US economy fairly closely to housing starts and he said once housing approvals I think it was sorry housing approvals once they start falling that's when the economy goes into recession and if you think about it, it's got a fair bit of logic to it because what you're doing is thinking about the borrowing money and bringing it into the into the economy. John Tepper of Berrien Perception has made those points that if you look at the forward-looking indicators like the growth in well money growth and building approvals, um, I mean that that is absolutely critical to what's coming for the economy. And once building approvals start to roll over. Everything else follows, and it does. It ties back to asset prices, um, and that, that actually supports your point, really, on whether the markets drive the economy or the other yeah. way. I think um, just going back to what you were saying about back in my day, my dad sent through over Christmas. He has these bouts of nostalgia, and he, he sent me a DVD, essentially with a load of old photos that he got from his old Kodak camera. 
And uh, it is actually amazing to look back at these pictures and see how much the world has changed mm. uh, since the, the 1970s and 80s. You know, Kodak is an example of a company which um, it saw the, the changes coming for the digitization of photos. And I think it even had patents uh, for digi- digital cameras, but just didn't move with the times in that direction, even though it saw it coming and eventually uh, fell away and went under. So I think a a follow-on question from that then is if the world is so fluid and so changing, does that have an implication for our ability to pick long-term winners? Can that even still be done given the rate of technological change? You know, that's like the central question, isn't it, really? Because you often hear this argument about, uh, you know, compounding and, oh, you pick quality companies and you hold them for, you know, a long time. And as I, funnily enough, I was just talking to one of our clients during the week when in a session showing that, you know, in terms of risk, the company lifespan is actually getting shorter and shorter. And so the idea of buying, you know, like Buffett, buying MasterCard or Coca-Cola and holding it for 50 years is, is I, I think personally, is reducing because it's becoming harder and harder. And, you know, there's there's always that argument. I was thinking about this earlier, you know, that argument about saying, oh, yeah, well, Facebook and Google and, you know, they'll always be around. And But when you actually look at it, that's probably what they were saying about railroads or the car or, you know, indeed going back even further, the horse and cart, you know, like, oh, they'll, you know, they'll never. I mean, remember the argument about the telephone. Um, the argument about computers, oh, there'll be a need for four of them. So is it possible to pick long-term winners? I mean, I suppose you could, but I would argue that capitalism is so dynamic at the moment and getting more and more dynamic because of technology and stuff that it's really, really difficult to actually pay a lot of attention to the, to the economics and and use that as a method to say, oh, well, I've worked out the industry for, um, you know, search and it'll be Google for 30 years, where in actual fact, if you look at the economics or the economy, it flips really quickly. I mean, we only got a smartphone 13 years ago and it's completely revolutionised the joint. Yeah, and in fact, um, Google, as at the time of recording, there have been some issues in terms of... Um, uh, Facebook advertising and and, and um, I, I know that um, there's discussions in my peer group about using other search engines because they worry about Google tracking every move and uh, should people use DuckDuckGo and you, you just don't know where that that stuff is going to head and I, I guess in keeping with Moore's law, you know, manufacturing is now a much uh, smaller part of the economy. There's, the services sector just continues to grow. So does that potentially? Uh, mean that we can expect uh, more volatility if there's going to be more turnover of the of the the main players in the stock market do can we expect more volatility going forward i think we suggested previously that might be the case because there's more speculation and more leverage these days yeah i definitely i think there's definitely going to be more volatility so that will provide interesting investment opportunities going forward one of the um, the one of the points you mentioned there was really important was about more services um, because services are generally locally based. 
Yeah, and like I think we might have talked about this. You know, you can't hire a plumber from you know Thailand. You get a plumber locally, um, and so the important point I'm sort of angling at is it always gets back to the investment opportunity and the price. You know, whether it's a whether it's a car, you know, Tesla, or whether it's um, you know, like you're saying, a search engine or something like that. The argument for investors is. If I really know industry economics really well, does that mean I'll be able to outsmart the the crowd? Bruce Greenwald, Professor Bruce Greenwald from Columbia, who's the who's the sort of value investors guru, he says yes. Um, and his argument is, well, if I study, you know, the oil industry uphill and down dale, I'll be able to defeat you in the um, in the market sort of thing. I I'm not so sure to be quite honest. Because I, I just see it as changing so fast that, like you're saying, I mean, have a look at the volatility in, in Bitcoin or um, GameStop, you know, and I think you're right in saying there's going to be a lot more of that. I'm just going to make a hell of a ride. I mean, I think you'll see a lot of fortunes, you know, won and lost really quickly. Yeah, that that does make sense. And I think um, another thing that's been going on at the moment, um, at the time of speaking, political changes in the US. Yeah. So we've uh, been through a period with um, uh, an interesting time, to say the least, with Donald Trump in charge um, and standing up to China's dominance, and that's been a big change. Now, we've lived through a long period of globalisation, lots of um, trade deals being struck and so on. Um, it seems to me that we've something has changed in that regard, and not just because of Donald Trump, but Australia is having its own issues with China now. Um, Chinese students are being discouraged uh, uh, from coming to Australia. There's other trade issues with wine and so on. And also in Hong Kong, um, I see Britain is offering uh, visas to residents of Hong Kong. So uh, have we reached some kind of a turning point there in terms of globalisation and free trade? And what does that mean for investment returns um, and cycles? Well, um yeah, I think we're at a really interesting point. I think we might have spoken about it in previous episodes, but um, economic cycles or theories usually run about 30 or 40 years. So you've had, you know, basically since Thatcher, Reagan, Hawke and Keating, you've had about 40 years of, you know, the globalisation too, the second the second um, sort of wave of globalisation. I think personally that's finished. Um, it might be a slow decline, but I think it's finished. And it's an interesting argument because a lot of people sort of say, "Oh well, if they do that, that'll be worse for that'll be worse for growth, and you know everybody will be all the poorer." Um, I must admit, I'm not really sure that that's the case. And the reason why is, I think, because when you think in terms of the shareholders, or you know, if I can put it as labour versus capital, capital likes to go wherever it can make money. So wherever you cut off that opportunity, capital says, well, that's no good for us because, you know, we want to be able to roam the empire and roam the globe and buy whatever assets we want. So if we go back to a sort of Cold War II routine, I actually perversely think that markets might be a bit duller going forward. May have They still may have greater volatility, but that will settle down and it will be 
it will be steadier returns, but in actual fact, the economy will be better because people will be, there'll be more protectionism and there'll be higher wages. And so it'll, it'll, it'll revert back to sort of what went on in the post-war. I'm, I mean, I'm just guessing like everybody else, this is just the way I see cycles work. But I really do think that it, we're definitely in a, in a sort of some sort of transition period. I don't think we can go back, like you said, on, on China. China and America are going to be clashing constantly over the next five and ten years, and I think that's going to be exactly like it was after the war when the Americans and the Russians were, you know, trying to sort out who was, um, who was the supreme one. Yeah, and we've had a massive disruption to international travel anyway this year, which has impacted people like myself. wasn't in the plans for this year, but uh, and I guess um, there'll be a lot of pent up demand for people wanting to travel. But whether or not we go back to the same globalization trend that we were seeing, that that's another question. You mentioned the cycle there, and um, I've seen a few articles uh, recently on you know is it different this time? You know. Is, is it uh, you know, is the cycle going to be different? I think, in a sense, it would be fair to say that each cycle is different in terms of you know the specifics. So, you know, in the tech tech boom years, are the, all the famous quotes about Sun Microsystems. This time, it might be crypto derivatives or gaming stocks, as you mentioned. But it seems to me that the behavioural characteristics are the the common denominator. Yeah. Um, so, following on from that, is there has there ever been a model? for picking long-term winners then that can work in all markets or is that is that really going to have to change as each underlying economic theory changes? Are, are you therefore better to focus on valuations rather than the specifics? Because it, it seems, you know, based on everything we've talked about today, um, the world was a different place post-war. It was different again in the Thatcher-Reagan years and it's yep. different again today. What is the implication of that for an investor? Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, the more the more I study history and the more I study markets, the more I come to the opinion that basically it's about valuation. And it's, you know, that sort of, I, mean, I think we talked about this in the first one of this series, you know, where we talked about economic uh, data and complexity and, you know, every week there's like 40 data points coming out with the producer's price index and the GDP figures and the labour figures and the growth figures and the, you know, housing figures and this figure and that figure. And the reality is you look at all that and, I mean, all of it's been around for 100 years or so, but the fact is we still have bull markets and we still have bear markets and, you know, bull markets follow bear markets and bear markets follow bull markets. So I think when you say ultimately if you studied economics, would it really help you be a better investor? My argument would sort of lean to be, well, not really, because if you stumbled on valuation and understood that a lot of it is basically just about that one simple thing, which really, if you think about it, Pete, makes complete sense. You know, it's a bit like, well, how much is it worth and, you know, what value do you get? Even the famous ones like Buffett and Peter Lynch, you know, basically say we don't do any macro stuff, um, we don't do industry stuff, you know, we're business analysts or something or, or you know, something of that nature, i.e. they don't pay that much attention to the broader economy at all. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, but that's the reason why, you know, I suppose if I put it this way, that's the reason why I think we teach principles because 
and we sort of say, you know, they're timeless is because the markets really run on valuation and they, like you were saying before about the behavioural stuff, you know. It's more, it's much more about that than it is about the economy and all the, the economic data points and stuff. Yeah, because uh, as we've touched on there before, uh, the economy can change the types um the, the, the most dominant industries will change through yeah. time. Um, and I saw um, just in the past uh, two weeks or so, uh, the famous uh, Buffett indicator, you mentioned uh, Warren before there, um, hitting, I think, 230% of uh, GDP, market value to GDP, which is uh, pushing about 90% above its long-term trend line. And that that is actually even more strongly overvalued than the, the tech bubble years. So, uh Obviously, valuations have been pushed up, um, especially in small caps recently, but actually pretty much everything's very expensive at the moment. Um, I think this is where it comes back to, as you said, having that holistic uh, philosophy or model when it comes to investing. So let's talk a little bit about the eight timeless principles that we use. And this was uh, your IP. And it, it actually took me some time to appreciate just how powerful the eight timeless principles are. It's a bit like trying to argue with the weather because individually they all make perfect sense, but it's when you bring them all together into that um, overall philosophy or investment model that it becomes so powerful. So those are eight timeless principles. So just to recap, you've got four thought principles uh, which you apply uh, before investing and then four action principles, uh, which you follow when investing. But the, the real power of the eight principles is that they work in all markets at all times. And in fact, in all asset classes, the same principles do apply. And it's a very systematic approach. And I th- as I think you've said elsewhere previously, you can certainly be lucky once or twice or several times but to be continually lucky for 30 or 40 years, that's realistically not going to happen. And that's where the importance of having a systematic model of philosophy becomes so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I should clarify just one point there um, and just uh, for the listeners that when we say it works in all markets, what we mean is that it will protect your capital in all markets and reduce your risk. Um, rather than, you know, like we're going to be knocking it out of the ballpark 20% every year like Warren Buffett. The idea has been, as I said, from my own, you know, 20-odd years in markets and my my study of economics <laughs> even longer now, the more the older I get, the more I realise that it's really quite simple. And it was interesting because I was just um, reading uh, Buffett's latest newsletter, uh, annual letter, you know, and it's the same, but, you know, it, I mean, how many times can Warren say don't bet against America is beyond me, to be quite honest, because he says it every year. But, you know, when you when you talk about Buffett, it really is the same systematic approach that he uses and what he's, the way I sort of thought of the eight principles was in a sense like Buffett saying, well, I know I'm not going to win every single time, what are the things that are going to be that protect my capital over 30 or 40 years? Because like you said, anyone can have, you know, like one hit wonders, fidget spinners, you know, products that come out, they're an absolute hit for six months and then you don't see them anymore. That's really not any good. 
as an investor. What you want is a system that says, I can use this for 20 or 30 years because I know it'll work through all the markets. So, you know, that's what that's what we sort of look at with the the timeless element of it. Yeah, and I think um, to me that th- this makes more sense as you go through life. I think, you know, when you're uh, just coming into the workforce, you know, I think back to when I graduated, um, I'd, I'd had a gap year to travel, uh, had another gap year to play cricket and then a few years study. So you're coming into the workforce, you know, I could earn a decent graduate salary, but my capital was was basically zero. So at that point in time, there's nothing really to lose. And if you if you take a punt um, yeah. on a on a, a speculative stock, or today it might be a cryptocurrency, or, or whatever it may be, well, you know, if it pays off, then fantastic. But you're not really uh, trying to protect capital at that point. You're just trying to increase your earning capacity. But obviously, a different stage in life now. I've got two kids. Uh, you know, I'm into my 40s. I've got uh, got much more to lose financially as well because I've built up an asset base. And I think that's where I start to look at the eight timeless principles and think, right, that, that is something that can protect my capital in good markets and bad. And if if the market does better than me over any given year, well, you know, that's that's fine. You know, the, but the big thing for me is that I'm not uh, risking losing a huge portion of my capital at a time when I really don't want to. And I think that's where that's where the eight timeless principles, when I say they work in all markets and at all times, that's what I'm really saying. I'm not saying you'll beat the market every year or over any specific time period. Yeah, I think it ties again back to that point we were talking about or, you know, the sort of the, the series title of economics and the markets, you know, like does, does economics sort of help? And it's, when you look at it, you look at the principles and say, well, not really. It's more if you adhere to the principles, you'll do better than you will by trying to follow the economy. You know. Um, so what you're saying is we've just done a mini series on the the importance of economics, and the conclusion is it's not important. Is that it? <laughs> it's trash. <laughs> not far off. <laughs> Calling all economists. Um, you're out of yeah. unemployed. But I mean, you know, seriously though. You know, you do sort of look at it and, well, I certainly won't call it a science, although they'd like to call it a science. It's, you know, we've got more economic knowledge and stuff. But as an investor, the thing is, the thing is, like, does it actually help? And the assumption that's been underlying it for, you know, 100 years is, oh, mate, you've got to know about the economy and, you know, you've got to know about all these figures and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think what we're saying in this series is sort of like, look, really, if you use these principles... And if you look at valuation, you don't need to know too much about economics. You know, heresy, even people like Warren Buffett sort of say, well, you don't need a big IQ, you need a, t- a good temperament. And, you know, we know all those stories about old people who just keep buying stocks and, you know, they drop dead with $10 million in the bank account and all this sort of stuff. Well, you know, they're not economists, you know, and they seem to do uh, all right. And so that's why it gets back to those sort of principles that will, I, I personally think, is a lot easier to learn. That sounds like a plug, but it's a lot easier to learn than it is to learn about economics, you know, and the, at what level of the complexity that it is today. I said two key takeaways. Pay attention to valuations in the market and have a systematic yeah. approach that you can continue to apply through the cycles because, economic theories will change you'll have different types of capitalism 
Uh, but if there's one thing that doesn't change, it's the behavioural aspect and also the uh, the systematic eight timeless principles that we talked about. Now, Buffett's uh, investor letter uh, went out this week, as you mentioned. We do tend to uh, unintentionally, I think, we, we come back to Uncle Warren quite often on this podcast series, probably most episodes, to be honest. So we thought rather than uh, uh, sporadically uh, dropping in uh, Buffett quotes here and there. What we might do next up is actually have a mini series on Warren Buffett, um, his principles of investing, and what we can learn as individuals from that. So, hope you enjoyed the mini series on economics. I've certainly learned a lot. Thank you, Steve. And uh, we'll look forward to kicking off next time with our uh, 20 quotes punch card on Warren Buffett, which we'll no doubt chew through very quickly. So, thanks for joining and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice. And we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.